Part one, chapter eight of Mushrooms on the Moor. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Lillis. Mushrooms on the Moor by Frank W. Borum. Part one, chapter eight. Dick Sunshine. Dick Sunshine was not his real name. At least so they said. But the thing that they called his real name did not describe him a scrap. It seemed to abandon all attempted at description as hopelessly impossible. But when you called him Dick Sunshine, it fitted him like a glove. That is the immense advantage that nicknames possess over real names. Of all real things, real names are the most unreal. There is no life in them. They stand for nothing. They express nothing. They reveal nothing. They bear no kind of relationship to the unfortunate individuals who are sentenced to wear them, like meaningless badges, for the term of their natural lives. But nicknames, on the other hand, sparkle and flash. They bring the man himself vividly and palpitatingly before you, and without more introduction or ado, you know him at once for what he is. That is the reason why we prefer to be called by our real names. We know in our secret souls that our nicknames are our true names, and that our real names are mere tags and badges, but we prefer the meaningless tag to the two-candid truth. There are obvious disadvantages in being constantly spoken of as Mr. Grump, Miss Crosspatch, or Miss Spitfire, whereas Mr. Smith, Mrs. Robinson, or Miss Jones are much safer and more non-committal. But for all that, the nicknames, depend on it, are the true names. Nicknames reveal the man, real names conceal the man. And since in the case of my present hero I desire to reveal everything and to conceal nothing, it is obviously desirable to speak of him by his nickname which is his true name, rather than by his real name which is a mere affectation and artificiality. He was always Dick Sunshine to me, and I noticed that the children always called him Dick Sunshine, and children are not easily deceived. Besides, he was Dick Sunshine, so what is the use of beating about the bush? Who was Dick Sunshine? It's difficult to say. He was partly a grocer and partly a consumptive. He spent half his time laughing and half his time coughing. He only stopped laughing in order to cough, and he only stopped coughing in order to laugh. You could always tell which he was doing at any particular time by taking a glance at the shop. If the shop was open, you know that Dick was behind the counter laughing. If it was closed, you knew that he was in bed coughing. A fine-looking fellow was Dick, or would have been if only his health had given him a chance. Fine, wavy golden hair tossed in naive disorder about his lofty forehead, and a small pointed beard set off a frank, cheery open face. Somehow or other there was a certain touch of chivalry about Dick, although it's not easy to say exactly how it made itself felt. It was a certain knightly bearing, perhaps, a haughty contempt for his own suffering, a rollicking but resolute refusal of anything in the shape of pity. Coughing or laughing, there was always a roguish little twinkle in the corner of his eye, a kind of danger signal that kept you on constant guard lest his next sally should take you by surprise. The church at Northeast Valley has had its ups and downs, like most churches, but as long as Dick was its secretary, it never had a gloomy church meeting. However grave or unexpected might be the crisis, he came up smiling and greeted the unseen with a cheer. When things were going well, he always made the most of it, and drew attention to the encouraging features in the church's outlook. If things were so-so, he pointed out that they might have been a great deal worse, and that the church was putting up a brave fight against heavy odds. If anybody criticized the minister, Dick was on his feet in a minute. Could the minister do everything? Dick wanted to know. Was he solely responsible for the unsatisfactory conditions? Why, anybody who watches the minister can see that the poor man is doing his best, which, Dick slyly added, is more than can be said for some of us. And the ministers of Northeast Valley used to tell me that, when they themselves got down in the dumps, Dick treated their collapse as a glorious joke. 
he would come down to the manse and laugh until he coughed and cough until he could laugh again and by the time he stopped laughing and coughing the masses of his golden hair were tumbled about his high forehead like shocks of corn blown from the stalks by playful winds in harvest time and when he went home to finish his coughing the manse was flooded with the laughter and the sunshine that he had left behind him i was sitting one morning in my study at mosquil when there came a ring at the front doorbell on answering it i found myself standing face to face with dick he was laughing so violently that he could at first scarcely salute me he followed me into the study and assured me as he sank into a chair that it was the fun of the world i asked him to explain the cause of his boisterous merriment had to give it up he gasped the doctors told me that i should die in a week if i remained in the shop any longer so i have left it to look after itself and come away no fun in dying in a week you know i admitted that there was something in that and inquired what he was going to do now that's the joke he roared between laughing and coughing i've come to stay with you there was nothing for it but to let him take his time so i patiently awaited further explanation at length it came just as i was locking up the shop he said presently i heard that the temperance people want a lecturer and organizer to work this district except the lecturing it will be all open-air work so i applied for it and got it but my dear fellow i remonstrated i never knew that you could lecture why outside the church meeting you never made a speech in your life that's part of the joke he cried going off again into a paroxysm of laughter but i told them that you would help me at the first and they appointed me on that condition so this is to be my headquarters his duties were to commence the following week and we arranged that he should make his debut as a lecturer at a place called outram about eight miles across country from mosquil i promised to accompany him and to fill up such time as he found it impossible or inconvenient to occupy in the meantime he got to work with his visiting and organizing the open air suited him his health improved amazingly and the mosquil manse simply rocked under the storms of his boisterous gaiety sometimes the shadow of the coming ordeal spread itself heavily over his spirit and he came to the study with unwanted gravity to ask how this or that point in his maiden effort had better be approached to prevent his anxiety under this head from becoming too much for his fragile frame i lent him a book and sent him out on to the sunlit veranda to read it it chanced to be the old curiosity shop he had never read anything of dickens and it opened a new world to him I have never seen anybody fall more completely under the spell of the magician. From the study I would hear him suddenly yell with laughter and come rushing through the hall to read me some passage that had just captivated his fancy. Whenever he came stealing along like a thief, I knew it was to talk about the lecture. When he came like an incarnate thunderstorm, I knew it was about the book. One passage in the famous story especially appealed to him. It was the part about Codlin and Short, the Punch and Judy men. In the middle of dinner, without the slightest provocation or warning, he would suddenly drop his knife and fork, throw himself back in his chair, slap his leg a sounding blow with his hand, and shriek out, Codlin's your friend, not short, and then go off into ecstasies of glee as he told the tale all over again. Well, Monday, the day of his opening lecture, came at last. During the day, he was unusually quiet and taciturn, although even in face of the grim test that awaited him the punch and judy men haunted his memory and led to occasional subdued outbursts of fun after tea we set out it was a delicious evening few things are sweeter than the early evenings of early summer the sunset is throwing long shadows across the fresh green grass and the birds are busy in the boughs everything about us was clad in its softest and loveliest garb we drove on between massive hedges of fragrant hawthorn and up huge avenues of stately bluegum trees, scattering the rabbits before us. 
then we caught sight of the river and drove over the bridge into the quiet little town in which unsuspected adventures awaited us dick was pale and quiet his sunshine was veiled in banks of cloud and i found it difficult to rouse him on arrival at the hall we found it crowded i was naturally delighted his pleasure was more restrained indeed he confided to me with a look that for him was positively lugubrious that he would have been more gratified if the horrid place had been empty however there was nothing for it not a soul except myself knew that dick was lecturing for the first time in his life the chairman led us to the platform and after a brief introduction relative to the renown of the speakers he called upon dick to address the townsfolk as a maiden effort it was a triumph his native good humour combined with careful preparation to produce a really excellent effect and he sat down amidst a thunder of applause i filled in an odd half-hour and then the chairman nearly killed dick at one blow would anybody in the audience care to ask either of the speakers a question he gravely inquired poor dick was the object of abject dismay this was a flank attack for which he was totally unprepared an elderly gentleman in the body of the hall rose slowly adjusted his spectacles and with grave deliberation announced that he wished to submit a question to the first speaker dick looked like a man whose death warrant was about to be signed the problem was duly enunciated and it turned out to be a carefully planned and decidedly awkward one i wondered how on earth poor dick would face the music he paused as though considering his reply then a sudden light mantled his face a wicked twinkle sparkled in his eye he rose smartly looked straight into the face of his questioner and exclaimed confidently codlin's your friend not short the audience was completely mystified the answer had no more to do with the question than dutch cheese has to do with the rings of saturn for a fraction of a second you could have heard a pin drop i saw that the only way of saving the situation was by commencing to applaud and i smote my hands together with a will and laughed as i have rarely allowed myself to laugh in public the sympathetic section of the audience followed suit a general impression seemed to exist that somehow dick had made a particularly clever point the old gentleman who had asked the question was manifestly bewildered he gazed helplessly round on his cheering fellow-citizens and evidently regarded the answer as some recondite illusion of which it would never do to display his ignorance he resumed his seat discomfited and ashamed when the applause and laughter had somewhat subsided i rose and moved a vote of thanks to the chairman which dick seconded though i fancied without much show of enthusiasm thus the meeting which dick never forgot came to an eminently satisfactory end although i heard privately long afterwards that as the people took their homeward way along those country roads many who had applauded vigorously inquired confidentially of their neighbours the exact bearing of the cryptic reply on the particular matter in hand if dick lacked laughter on the way across the plains to the meeting he amply atoned for the deficiency on the way home he roared and yelled and screamed in his glee i had to say something he exclaimed i hadn't the slightest idea what the old gentleman was talking about and the only thing i could think of was the punch and judy he laughed and coughed his way through that campaign everybody grew wonderfully fond of him and looked eagerly for his coming he did a world of good and shamed scores of us out of that gloom in which we bore our slighter maladies my mail from new zealand tells me that at last his cough has proved too much for him so he has given it up but i like to fancy that in the land where coughing is no more heard Dick Sunshine is laughing still. End of part one, chapter eight.